Hello, everyone, and thank you for stopping by today for our Safety and Health Magazine webinar sponsored by JJ Keller. We're going to let our audience get settled for just a minute, and we'll start the presentation in about a minute. Thank you. Thank you folks for joining us for this Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. We're gonna start the presentation in just a moment. We'll let our audience members uh, come in and get settled just for a moment. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Process Safety Management, Do You Have a Covered Process? Sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Barry Botino and I'm an Associate Editor at Safety and Health. I'll be moderating today's event. Before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items to share with you all today. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a Q&A with our speaker. If you have a question, just click on that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type in your question, and press the Send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. After this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you'll also receive a link in our post-event email. With that, let us introduce our presenter today. With us today is Travis Roden, and unfortunately, uh, Travis's colleague, Ray Chishti, could not be with us today. Travis serves as a senior editor for JJ Keller and has been with the organization since 1997. Travis specializes in the areas of safety management and auditing. And I must say, he's also an excellent follow on Twitter for all things EHS. We thank you folks for tuning into this presentation today. And Travis, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thank you, Barry. And uh, again, thanks everyone for um, joining us uh, here today to talk about a very important and sometimes confusing topic of uh, process safety management. The term gets thrown around a lot and you hear, you hear the term safety management and immediately I think uh, people have some assumptions that uh, that it is something that it isn't. And a lot of times that assumption is that it applies to, um, applies to them when maybe it doesn't. But in some cases, you know, the reverse is true where they don't realize that it does, does apply and it does. So um, we'll try to break down some of that as we go along and um, hopefully give you a pretty good idea of, um, of really what the standard is um, as you can see on the slide there, the key is not just process safety management or PSM, which is what you hear it referred to a lot, but kind of the key component that triggers it is highly hazardous chemicals. So that is, that is what the standard is aimed at, at dealing with and controlling. Um, and it's not every chemical and it's not every chemical or certain chemicals, even in a uh, specific in smaller quantities. So we'll, we'll talk about that aspect. And to that end, we'll talk about just, you know, what, what does OSHA consider to be a highly hazardous chemical or an HHC for purposes of 
the process safety management standard. Uh, of course, we'll look at process. What is a process? How do you know if you're covered? And then finally, what steps you would take uh, or need to take to comply? So the, the problem and what led to OSHA creating the process safety management uh, standard back in the, the, the 90s was a result of numerous explosions, um, unexpected releases of toxic chemicals. Um, as you can see on the slide, tens of thousands of deaths. And some of the, the, the more major ones there are listed that happened in the 80s and 90s. Certainly the, uh, the, the Bhopal, India uh, tragedy is one that I think um, resonates with a lot of people, uh, 10,000 plus deaths. And um, you know, if you look at the exposure that continued on there after that, probably more than that uh, from a pesticide plant uh, release. And then there have been there have been many others, uh, everything from uh, petroleum ex uh, explosions to um, you know various other chemical releases that have happened uh, certainly before OSHA issued the standard, and they unfortunately still happen because even though the standard did lead to a lot of improvements, it, it hasn't addressed um, everything. For example, combustible dust is, is still a problem. Uh, in many industries and it's not properly addressed by um, the process safety management standards. So there are, there are some issues with it, but it certainly uh, was a step in the right direction to uh, prevent the number of these types of tragedies from happening and also to mitigate um, some of the risks when, when, they, when they do happen. So if there is a release, hopefully, you know, it gets caught or contained before a significant uh, loss of life or property damage occurs. So the solution again to all of that was um, OSHA came out with the Process Safety Management of Highly Hazardous Chemicals Standard, which is, you can find that in 29 CFR 1910-119. And you'll note appendices there. This is one of those standards where the appendices, in particular Appendix A, is as important as the standard itself. Um, Appendix A contains a list of uh, approximately 80, some, 80 85 um, specific substances that are regulated by this standard. So it's, it's very important. And uh, the other, it was kind of a two-pronged approach from OSHA and the EPA. So OSHA came out with the PSM standard. EPA came out with what's called a risk management program or RMP. So some of you may have uh, heard of that one. And, and nine times out of 10, if you're covered by one, you're covered by the other. Um, so if you find out today that, hey, maybe you are covered by this, uh, you, you probably want to look at the EPA's risk management program requirements as well, even though we're really not going to talk about those today. They're, they're, they're quite similar, but obviously um, the OSHA standard is obviously ge geared toward protecting workers, worker safety, whereas the EPA program is more geared toward uh, surrounding communities and the environment. But the elements are, are very similar. And those elements are um, certainly the key ones anyway, process safety information. So developing, compiling the information that is needed to run the process safely, a process hazard analysis or a PHA, um, which is usually done by a team. And we'll talk about that, the different methods that you can do, training uh, those involved in operating the process, mechanical integrity, Obviously, if you're going to be running um, piping and you know tanks, piping all kinds of different uh, processes with uh, very hazardous chemicals, you want you want uh, you want all the uh, you want all the equipment to be in good shape. So mechanical integrity is key, and then compliance audits, where 
uh, OSHA requires in this standard that um, you periodically audit your adherence to the standard. So that's one of the only OSHA standards that actually has a self-contained um, audit requirement in it. So that's kind of a little bit unusual there. And you know what we're trying to prevent again. This just kind of lists some of them. Um, and and if you kind of look at them, they go sort of with that. Uh, if we think about that uh, pyramid that you sometimes see, Heinrich's uh, pyramid of um, you know for every one fatality, there's X number of um, injuries and so many near misses. It's kind of the, the same way with this if you start looking at what all can happen. You know, there can be process failures, there can be mechanical breakdowns, business loss, but they, you know, they don't always lead to things like explosions or toxic clouds or spills. Uh, human error can come into play, leaks. So there, you know, there's a lot of different things that you're trying to prevent with a good process safety management program. And um, hopefully you prevent those at the, the, the bottom level so that you, know, you never end up ideally even with a leak, but with something like process safety management, if you've implemented correctly, if there's a leak, there's gonna be a safeguard, a leak detection system that's going to detect that and hopefully you can act on it before before it leads to any kind of um, you know, danger to workers or, or the community. So it may cause some business interruption, but the idea is that you're, you're putting in those redundancies to, to detect potential issues. So prevention is the goal. And you can kind of, uh, if you wanna take a look at that little diagram on the right there, um, that came from the uh, chemical safety Hazard and Investigation Board, or CSB. They're kind of they're an independent agency, so not part of OSHA, but they they investigate many of these high-profile explosions and releases. And you know, this is a good idea of what process safety information will look like. So if you're running a, a you know a decent uh, process, you're gonna you're gonna need to compile this type of information and have and have all of this uh, on file as to exactly how the process works, what equipment feeds what, um, the direction of flow of all of this, um, and so forth. So it is a very, uh, there's a lot to it. If you're covered by it, there's a lot you have to put in place. Layers and layers of controls uh, to ensure the integrity of the process and prevent that, like, like we've been saying, catastrophic consequence from occurring. So when it comes to applicability, this is, I guess, the, the really the main takeaway for today for those of you who may be new uh, to this concept or this, this standard, two ways you can be covered by the process safety management standard. The first one is to have one of 130, I think I said 80 earlier, yeah, it is 130 specific chemicals listed in Appendix A to the standard in the listed threshold quantity. And those, those range from, you know, I think the lowest is 500 pounds and then they, you know, goes up to 15,000, I believe. So you'll, you'll definitely wanna look at that. Those are very specific uh, chemicals. So that's one way. The other way is having any flammable gas or flammable liquid in a quantity of 10,000 pounds or more on site and in one location. So when you look at the number, number one there, that means you would have individually, let's say you had X chemical that was listed in Appendix A at a quantity of 3,000 pounds and the threshold for it is 5,000 pounds. So you would not be covered. And if you had another Appendix A chemical in 3,000 pounds and threshold limit was 5,000 pounds, you still wouldn't be covered. You don't have to aggregate the first one. Number two, however, um, for flammable gases and flammable liquids, you do have to aggregate those if 
they are on site and in one location. And that basically means um, if, if there was an incident with one of these locations of flammable uh, gases or flammable liquids, could it impact the other one? And if the answer is yes, then uh, you would aggregate them. They're considered essentially one, one process. And there's a definition of process on the right side of your screen there. Uh, really, it's about as broad, uh, encompassing as you can be. Any activity involving a highly hazardous chemical, including use, storage, manufacturing, handling, or on-site movement. So you can see it includes connected vessels and separate vessels, which is what I talked about a minute ago, that could impact one another. So uh, very, very broad. You may think, well, I just, you know, we just have these in storage. Well, storage is considered to be a process if you meet the standard, um, you know, the, uh, the threshold quantity. Couple of examples here of Appendix A, uh, anhydrous ammonia, the uh, threshold quantity is 10,000 pounds, chlorine, 1,500, uh, hydrogen sulfide, 1,500. A few exclusions do exist. So one of them, if the uh, total quantity of flammable liquid stored in atmospheric uh, storage tanks is or transferred is kept below their boiling point, and this is the key part of this, without the benefit, benefit of chilling or refrigeration, then you can exclude that from your count uh, toward the threshold quantity. Also, hydrocarbon fuels that are used solely for um, heating or gas for vehicle refueling. So they're, they're used solely for workplace consumption as a fuel. Those, those are also not counted towards your, your total uh, quantity. And there is this, um, this other issue that you need to be cognizant of, and that is called the Mir decision. And what that is, it's a court case that goes all the, back, all the way back to 1996, but OSHA never actually went back and changed the standard. They haven't yet. Um, so it still stands and it impacts how flammables, um, how they treat flammables that are stored when they are in or transferred uh, from atmospheric tanks. And basically they're, they're exempted regardless of the quantity. Um, and that's, again, that's kind of a, of a loophole. Uh, but even though they may be exempted from PSM, they're still covered under the flammable liquid standard at 1910-106 and sometimes the general duty clause. So just, uh, just remember that it only applies when it's in storage. So it's, you know, it's the flammable liquid part that is in storage in an atmospheric tank. And we, we mentioned that part about um, kept below the boiling point and, and whatnot. So there's no exemption if it's used for uh, part of the process beyond storage, if it's not true storage, or if it's stored under pressure or chilled below the boiling point. But that is something that for years OSHA has said they're going to change, but at this time they have not. So it still technically does, um, is still an exemption. Few other exemptions, and these are more broad, they don't necessarily apply to specific chemicals, but rather industries or situations. So retail facilities in those specific NAICS codes listed uh, are exempt as well as oil or gas well drilling or servicing operations. And then facilities that normally are not occupied by workers or, or anyone, those are also exempt. We, all, we, we often get uh, you know, the question, well, what about if I'm a small employer? I've only got 10 workers. Do I have to implement all of this? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. Uh, the standard does not differentiate between how many employees a company has. Um, it's triggered by having a covered process. So um, studies have shown actually that smaller companies are 
more likely to actually have a release or injury. So it's, it's very important uh, for any employer who has a covered process to implement these, uh, these steps. The good thing about a small, you know, being a smaller employer, you may have a, a better chance at uh, separating chemicals so that they you know, would not have to be aggregated or to limit the quantities that you have on site at one time. Um, and again, that can reduce the coverage. So, you know, if you, if the, if the threshold quantity is 10,000 pounds and you can set it up so that you don't, you, you know, your inventory is such that you never reach that 10,000 pounds, even if it's 9,000 pounds, um, you know, then you're, you would never, it would never trigger the standard. So smaller employers can get away with that sometimes. Also separating it so that, you know, if there, if one process is here and you can move another one or separate it through engineering type um, barriers or walls or that kind of thing, buildings, um, you know, you can, you can limit coverage uh, by reducing the quantities that you have to aggregate. But just a few examples of industries who are uh, covered by process safety management and that often have um, covered processes. Uh, some that you might not automatically uh, think of, pharmaceuticals, for example, um, a lot of times are covered. Uh, a lot of the food, food manufacturing facilities will be covered um, because, and that's because of the ammonia refrigeration systems, which are ultimately considered processes if they, you know, if you have the, the proper quantities. So, you know, this list may surprise you a little bit when you start looking at uh, at that. It's pretty pretty broad in terms of which which industries do have uh, covered processes. So, if you happen to be covered by the standard, there are uh, about 12 elements really that you have to implement. Um, those are listed, the main ones on the slide. Employee participation is key. Process safety management or process safety information or PSI, the process hazard analysis, operating procedures, training, contractor provisions. That one is key. They, we see a lot of incidents where there just isn't communication between, you know, a contractor coming in, doing work either on or around a process, and just the they're not in sync with what the employer's doing and, and we end up with some, some problems there. Uh, Pre-startup pre safety reviews, mechanical integrity, um, management of change, another huge one. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along. And uh, you can see the other three there as well. We'll talk about all of these as, uh, as we zip through here. So first off, uh, employee participation. So with this, you are required to create a written plan, provide the access to it, to all the information that's necessary to the workers, as well as consult with them on how to, um, how to implement the process. So, and, and all the information that goes along with it. So they're gonna have, workers are gonna have key, key information to share as far as how the, how the process operates or could operate or should operate. So you are required to consult with them, um, have them part of the development of the plan and certainly provide access when they, when they request it. So if, um, you know, if someone wants to see your, the process safety information and, and, they're, and they're involved or could be impacted by the, uh, by the process, you certainly would want to um, would want to uh, to give them that information, and uh, that is uh, one of the things that um, you know JJ Keller can do. And I think we might have a poll here uh, to launch. Um, JJ Keller can definitely uh, help you comply with some of these uh, process safety management. Um, elements. So if you take a look at the slide there and, you know, let us know if you'd like more information on, um, on any of this, certainly the uh, process safety information, the response, the process hazard analysis portion, or even an audit 
um, you know, we were happy to uh, to help you out with that and send you um, some information as well regarding the services that, that we can provide um, and some information just about the standard in general. So definitely take uh, take some time there and uh, and select if you'd like to receive that compliance brief. It's a really good really good overall brief that kind of summarizes what we're what we're talking about um, here today very nicely, I think. So it's uh, you can see a snapshot of it here. Uh, it's really all about understanding understanding the standard and and uh, you know how your operations may or may not be be covered. So let's look at process safety information, which is really kind of the foundation of the your 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 program. So in order to understand the hazards of the chemicals, you've got to gather all the information that's pertinent. So that's things like the safety data sheets for certain, which are going to contain, you know, all the information about the uh, boiling points, uh, flammability, uh, classifications, storage handling, that kind of thing, the chemistry involved. So, you know, a lot of times with process safety management, the safety manager may be overseeing the, uh, the program from the OSHA standpoint, but you very likely are going to have chemists involved in terms of you know, how the process uh, functions, where the reactions occur, um, that sort of thing. So, so you're definitely gonna to need to work closely with them to gather this type of information. And that's part of the requirements are to, you know, have a, a proper team assembled with the necessary expertise. But you'll look at things like, you know, what is the maximum inventory uh, we would possibly have of this uh, chemical or this process? look at the safe limits of it, as well as any design codes that, um, that may come into play. And design codes are things like um, American national standards, ANSI standards, standards from industry groups like the Ammonia Refrigeration Institute, for example. Um, so those are gonna be very unique to your specific uh, chemical and process. So you're not gonna find that part of it in the OSHA standard. You'll either need to compile that in-house from your own experts or bring in someone uh, that has that expertise that can tell you, okay, um, you know, you're gonna need to comply with this ANSI standard, uh, this ANSI standard, as well as this uh, standard from the Petroleum uh, Institute, American Petroleum Institute. So there's, there's a lot that, that goes into this. So that was PSI or process safety information. And then we get into what's called the process hazard analysis or the PHA. And again, that has to be performed by a team with expertise in engineering and process operations. And what that's going to do is identify all the potential hazards of your process as well as the potential solutions. And there are required processes um, that you have to use techniques that you have to utilize. For example, you either have to utilize a HAZOP process, the uh, FMEA, a what if technique, or a checklist approach. So those are written into the standard uh, and they, they, they give you a little bit of information in the standard about what those are if you've never done um, those types of uh, evaluation risk uh, tech hazard techniques before. You have, to, you have to do one of those. You have to look at the facility siting. So where is it located? Uh, what, are, you know, what are the potential issues there? Uh, human factors, of course, that's always going to be a present um, and maybe one of the more difficult ones to control. Prior incidents, um, have, we had, have we had incidents with this before? Uh, you know, what, what happened? Did we implement appropriate uh, controls? Control failures. What happened when our controls actually didn't work as they were supposed to? We thought the alarm, the, we thought this would detect a leak, but it turns out the alarm did not go off or it wasn't connected properly or it, the leak was in a place where we didn't think it possible that it could be, you know, things like that. Then you develop recommendations from that team and they get considered um, 
and you have to revalidate the PHA every five years under the standard. Again, this is, this is much different from most other standards that do not have this type of a, this type of a really just rigid approach. Operating procedures seems pretty obvious, um, but there's a lot there's a lot to it in the sense that it kind of the operating procedures feed off of and into all of the other elements of the standard. So if there's a problem, if you locate a problem with the operating procedures or change something with the operating procedures, chances are it's also going to change one of the other elements, your process hazard analysis, your process safety information or something of that nature. But really you need to have uh, procedures for startup and shutdown as well as normal operations, temporary operations if that's uh, applicable, emergency operations. So if you're running, um, you know, under a power failure or, you know, something, something that's different, if something has gone wrong with one of the processes or part of the process, you'd have operating procedures. You'll want to include your limits, the deviations, as well as the hazard controls. And this one is an annual certification. So again, operating procedures annually, process hazard analysis every five years. Training is uh, one of the more straightforward parts of the, uh, of the standard in terms of uh, what you have to train on and when you have to do it. So there's initial training, and this is for all employees who are involved in operating the process. So you wouldn't necessarily have to include an employee that just, um, you know, happens to uh, walk through the, uh, the facility um, on occasion, but if they're involved in operating the process or could be impacted, then you would, you would need to train them in the process overview, the hazards, operating procedures, and safe practices. And uh, I think we have another, maybe another poll here um, where um, JJ Keller can certainly help you comply with these 14 elements. Uh, you know, training is, is a big part of, of what we do here. Um, so we help by reviewing logs of employee training on safety specific uh, health hazards, emergency operations, including the refresher training uh, that has to be conducted uh, every three years. And that jumps right into contractors really because uh, they need to be trained as well. And they need to have, in a lot of cases, their own um, process safety management programs and the two parties end up working together. So it's not necessarily a matter of who's responsible. If you're a host employer, you bring in a contractor to do work on or around your process, there has to be an exchange of information between the employer and the contractor in terms of what precautions are in place, what are the hazards, um, who's gonna be doing what, the employer has to evaluate the contractors they're bringing in. Um, and then the contractor needs to train and notify the facility of any hazards that, that they may uh, be bringing in. And this applies pretty much to any contractor working on the covered process, except for services that are incidental, like, uh, for example, janitorial services. So if someone is just coming in to sweep the floor or you know, that kind of cleanup, really not involved in the process or not gonna impact the process. They don't have to go through this particular uh, exchange of information and training between the contractor and host. So pre-startup safety review. This applies to new and modified facilities. So if you've already got the facility you know, in place, you, you know, this should have already been, been done, but uh, in a lot of cases it kicks in when, um, you know, a process is taken offline or something of that nature. Uh, and basically what you want to make sure of is that, and the standard lists all of this, um, that it's in accordance with the design specifications. You've got the operating procedures, everyone's aware of that. 
any changes that have taken place have been reviewed um, and that the operators have been trained. So you wanna do all of that before you would restart um, or start up a new, a new process. And then we get into things like mechanical integrity. Uh, again, obviously talked about that earlier. This is not the thing that you want to mess around with faulty, faulty products or um, not doing your inspections or preventive maintenance. Uh, mechanical integrity is really where, really what keeps the system, you know, from, from leaking or, or releasing or exploding. So there's definitely that maintenance component, regular inspection and testing, as well as applying the RAGAGEP or the recognized um, engineering uh, and good, uh, good practices. So you can see that there. And again, these are all going to be very unique to your process. I get that question a lot, you know, how often do we need to uh, run this test on our process or how often do we need to inspect this particular valve or, or gasket or what does it need to be uh, designed? What, what material do we need to use for the piping? And, you know, it's, you got to look at those, those engineering practices and those ANSI standards and codes. Those are really what's going to tell you what it is. And, you know, there are infinite number of types of processes out there. So they're all going to be different depending on what chemicals you're using. If you just look to the right there of the picture, um, you know, you can see you've got all kinds of stuff going on there. And, uh, you know, if you've got, got chemicals that form a reaction, that's going to be a different issue than if you don't. Um, so you really do have to look at, at your your particular uh, process and equipment and find out what those uh, engineering practices are that go along with it. So hot work permits, nothing new there as far as most of you probably are concerned in terms of uh, you're used to that with welding of all sorts, but certainly when you're uh, when you're conducting any type of hot work on or near a covered process, uh, there has to be a special hot work permit, hot work permit issued that needs to be documented. So that's just included in the process safety management standard. Um, you know, it doesn't go into any any more much more great detail about um, you know how you do the welding and whatnot. It, uh, but it does it does actually weave that right into the the 1910-119 standard. Management of change. This one may be where we see the biggest number of breakdowns occur, where um, you know there is a there's a replacement of a part, something gets changed, and for whatever reason, the company does not go back and take a look and go through all the proper steps that we've that we've talked about up to this point, where they don't effectively evaluate you know, or they just don't understand what the potential ramifications uh, could be of making a change, say, to even something as, as, as small, seemingly small as a, you know, a gasket where they switch to a different kind or, or something of that nature. And it just, it just doesn't hold. And it leads, end up, ends up leading to, to, to a release or a failure. So it's written into the standard that you do have to evaluate every single change to a process, uh, even temporary changes. So if it's just going to be something, uh, you know, until you can get a permanent change in place, you still have to go through the management of change process. Um, the only exemption from that is uh, replacements in kind. So if you're replacing a part with a part that is essentially exactly the same, uh, you don't have to go through this specific hazard um, evaluation, but otherwise you really do have to assess it and go through those, um, basically all that process hazard uh, analysis that we've been, that we've been talking about. You got to look through the entire, the entire process to see what the effect would be. And you never want this to happen. Um, unfortunately, it does happen 
um, all too frequently with uh, chemical uh, processes, and that is an incident happens. So the uh, process safety management standard does include an entire section on incident, incident investigation. And again, this is one of the few standards, OSHA standards that actually does this. And it requires you to investigate actual incidents. So where there has been a release or an explosion or fire, as well as near misses. Um, so that's, that's the critical part not to uh, miss. And the uh, investigation must be prompt, meaning as soon as safely possible. And it has to involve employees that are knowledgeable in that specific process. And then of course you have to document your recommendations and findings, as well as those corrective actions that, that you've implemented um, based on the investigation. And most of the time, those corrective actions, especially after something fairly significant happens, is going to result in going back and revising operating procedures, possibly your process safety man or process safety information, um, and so on. So again, each of these elements kind of work together, and they all they all sort of feed each other. And then we have um, so emergency planning and response. That one is also, you know, there's a general OSHA requirement in 1910-38 for all companies um, having to have an emergency action plan, but um, the process safety management standard specifically calls that out in, in the 1910-119 standard, basically saying you need an action plan for the entire plant that has to include pre-planning for catastrophes. So that's, um, you know, obviously that's a big, a big task as well as conducting training or drills. And I think, you know, if you have an emergency um, response team involved in your process safety management, or if you just have a process, if you have a covered process in general, um, there, there definitely needs to be coordination ahead of time with, with your local uh, fire department, police department, all of those agencies who might respond to a release that happened at your facility, it's a great idea to bring those people in occasionally, have them be familiar with your process, where things are located, um, you know, what you have, uh, what's needed to address or mitigate. You know, if you have a certain type of gas release, what are we going to need in order to um, to uh, you know, come in there and combat this. So definitely it's a good idea to work with those during your drills, either annually or at least bring them in on occasion. And then we have uh, another, like I said earlier, another unusual OSHA requirement is that this standard requires you to conduct an internal audit for compliance with the standard itself. So it's not saying you have to do a complete audit, you know, of every, of your forklifts and all that kind of stuff. You're doing an audit of the process safety management standard. And that needs to be done every three years. Um, findings have to be documented. And of course you have to address any deficiencies that would be, would be found along the way. So that's a, that's a little bit unusual. Most of the OSHA standards um, don't, don't do that. The closest one I think might be the uh, lockout tag out with the procedure uh, inspections and auditing of the uh, or review, I should say, of the uh, canceled confined space entry permits. But most, for the most part, um, OSHA standards don't, don't contain such a requirement as this. So I know we've moved through this uh, pretty quickly, but it's a you know, it is a, it's a bare beast of a topic. And uh, if you're covered by it, it's definitely something you're not gonna comply with, you know, in a day or two. It's gonna take uh, a lot of time, a lot of resources, and uh, maybe some outside help um, to get it up and running and functional. So um, you know, just remember, they don't call them highly hazardous chemicals uh, for nothing. They are definitely the cause of many serious and high profile explosions and releases. 
And, you know, that's the other part of this. We, we don't, you talk about the damage, obviously, to the facility. Certainly, the, the important thing would be the, you know, the, the safety of workers or the community and the environment. But there's also, you know, the public uh, aspect of this as well, the public image aspect where, you know, if you have like some of these pictures that I've had on a couple of the slides where the entire facility is, you know, up in, in smoke and uh, has rattled the surrounding communities, it's not going to bring about good, good press. So it's, uh, it's really something nobody wants to have to deal with. So that's, that's why it's so important to put these elements into place. And as we mentioned, it does cover pretty much all industries and all sizes of employers. So, and if you are covered, there are a lot of requirements that you do have to, to implement. And with that, I think we have uh, maybe our last poll to bring up uh, here again. This is just giving you an opportunity um, to uh, get some information from JJ Keller um, in terms of a process safety management compliance brief, as well as some information on how JJ Keller Consulting Services uh, can help you with figuring all this out. I mean, I know I've thrown a lot at you uh, today, especially if you were new to this and you may or be on the fence about whether you have a covered process or not. Um, you know, it's it definitely if you need somebody to help you. Um, help you out there, uh, certainly take a look at that poll question and select what you, you, what you, what you desire there. And um, I believe that'll take us maybe to our uh, what questions that we have time for that have come in. Well, thank you, Travis. We appreciate you sharing your insights with us today. Uh, before we start the q and I want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. And just a reminder for our attendees, if you'd like to ask a question, feel free to click that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Uh, if we don't get to your question today, all unanswered questions will be forwarded along to Travis today. Now let's go ahead, Travis, and get to some of those questions. We had a couple come in regarding uh, specific uh, situations. For example, Andrew from our audience asks, uh, if there are two HHCs on site, uh, but they're separated by 300 feet, would that be a part of PSM? Uh, that is a very good question. and. Um... It, uh, you know, first thing you, you need to look at is the quantities. So, you, have, you know, if they were, let's just assume that for this scenario, you do have enough quantities that the processes are covered. What you have to look at um, is whether, you know, an explosion in one could, could reach an explosion in the other or, or impact in the other. And that's, it's not necessarily something that you can pin down in terms of 300 feet versus you know 250 or, or 400, you kind of have to look at the quantities that you have in both processes um, and the, the the characteristics of each each product um, to determine. Okay, if this thing, for example, if this one explodes, what's the likely damage that's going to happen? And then that again will can even depend on the controls you have in place, you know, sprinkler systems, uh, various things like that. But certainly OSHA does recognize, to get to your question, separation uh, by distance as an effective uh, means of having to combine processes. So, you know, if you determine that, hey, 300 feet is sufficient, then, you know, if you can document that, then OSHA does allow you to count those as, you know, not as two separate processes. So yeah, it is separation by distance is definitely a possibility. I just can't say for sure, you know, without knowing the specifics, whether that particular scenario would 300 feet would be enough. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Travis. The next situation, um, Chester asks, um, so there is an employer who has uh, offloads liquid propane from railroad tank cars to 
above ground storage tanks and then local trucks come and pick it up from there. Uh, the employer doesn't own the rail cars or the tanks, just the ground that the facility is located on. And they have two employees there who help with the offload. Uh, obviously there are well over 10,000 pounds on that site there. What sections of 1910.119 would that facility be responsible for? Boy, that is a, that is a good question. Um, I mean, it sounds like uh, I'm trying to think if there would be any exemptions that, that come up, that come off right off the top of my head. Um, but it, it sounds as though they have employees that are, from what I gather, exposed. So it's not it's not one of those re unoccupied remote uh, situations. They do own the process, I believe, if I understand that correctly. It sounds like that they would be responsible for the entire, you know, 1910-119 as far as you'd have to maybe, maybe, you know, there it's going to be dwindled down as far as the amount of work you'd have to do to go through each element. But I think each element would apply to some extent because uh, if you do have a covered process, then you do have to do the, the, the process information. You do have to do uh, the management of change, the audits, and so on. It's just going to be much more minimal in terms of, for example, your process safety information, because you're basically dealing with the tank. I assume that uh, there's there's basically just connecting to it and and dropping and and depositing to it. So if I understood that correctly, it sounds like it would be covered, and you'd have to implement the elements, but it, it probably wouldn't wouldn't rise nearly to the level of of you know, having the sophisticated maps and drawings where we're showing all the piping and uh, connections and reactions. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, next question is from Greg and he's curious, would a bottling operation for distilled spirits be considered a covered process due to flammability? And he says, for example, 800 to 80 to 100 proof distilled spirits are transferred from an atmospheric holding tank to a filling machine for bottling into consumer packages. Yeah, I would, I would believe if you have uh, 10,000 pounds or more in that process, um, and like you say, it's flammable, that, that, Sounds like it would be covered to me. Um, I don't believe it would fall under the retail exemption. Um, it, it definitely sounds like it, it would be covered. Okay. Thank you, Travis. Next question we'll send to you. Um, Arthur wants to know, um, could you share the location or the web link for the list of highly hazardous chemicals? Yeah, if you go to, um, to the OSHA website, and click on their, uh, there's a tab they have there for laws and regulations. Um, what you wanna look for is 1910.119, so 119, and then specifically Appendix A um, has, is, is the list of highly hazardous chemicals. Okay, great, thank you. Um, another question from Andrew, he's wondering, um, is it correct that a host must keep an OSHA 300 log for contractors that get an OSHA recordable while working on site? Um, if they, if the host supervises the day-to-day -day work of that contractor, or if it's a temp worker, same thing applies, then you would need to count um, that person's recordable on your log you do not have to keep a separate log for contractors, but um, if a contract employee is under your daily supervision, then you do have to uh, log any recordables to them on your log. But if they're, if they're coming in, working on the process and they have pretty much, you know, you're not really directing what they're doing, um, then they, they would be logged on their own the contractor employers log. So, and they, and they only get logged once. So it's either gonna be on the contractor's log or the host employer's log. And, and like I said, the key is uh, under OSHA is who's providing the day-to-day -day supervision. Okay, great. And I did wanna mention, we had a, a question that I answered offline. Uh, one of our 
uh, viewers today, Kenneth asked about R-A-G-A-G-E-P and according to OSHA.gov that uh, from their website recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices. So just wanted to share that bit of information oh, yes, for everyone. Yes. Good, good question. Um, that one, we throw that term out there so much that a lot of times um, don't define it. But yeah, ragagep, you'll hear it. But yeah, it is, as Barry said. Okay, our next question is from Anthony. Um, he's wondering where he could find an updated list of the most frequent PSM NEP citations. Uh, so the way, the, the, the only way I can think that you can do that is through the OSHA website. If you go to, there's a tab called data. I think it's da data and something else, but data is essentially the key. Click on that and then find frequently cited violations. And once you get to there, there's, it, it defaults to an industry field, but up at the top, you can switch it to uh, view, view profile by standard. And once you click that, then basically what you do is click in, um, put 1910.0119 um, in there, no period. And it will give you all of the OSHA citations that have been um, been issued over the last year. I won't, I don't believe it, it gives you, it differentiates between whether it was conducted under the emphasis program or, uh, or not, unless you click on each specific inspection. Um, that's the only way you can, can delineate between, you know, just, but usually they are gonna fall under that. Uh, the majority of them come through the national emphasis program, I think. Uh, but the other thing you can do is always uh, fill out a freedom of information request from OSHA, and uh, they will um, they will provide that information as well if you want to know specifically about the NEP. Great. Thank you, Travis. Um, we talked a little bit about liquid propane gas earlier with Chester's question. David wants to know, is LPG covered under the PSM standard? So yeah, if you have, um, if it's considered to be, you know, a flammable liquid, if you look at the safety data sheet, if what you've got's flammable, then uh, and you have ten thousand pounds, then it would be covered. Um, the trick with that is, if it's not covered by PSM, OSHA does have a specific uh, standard, another a different standard that uh, 1910.111 or 110 specific to um, LPG. So you'd want to you'd want to take a look at that. So even if you're not covered by PSM, uh, you you'd be covered by the other one. But it's not as rigorous. I mean, it's it's um, it certainly addresses the hazards of that type of uh, uh, of substance, but it's you know it's nothing like the PSM standard. So one or the other, though, you would be covered. Okay, kind of similar to flammable liquids, where you have 1910.106 that provides things like uh, you know how much can be stored in a cabinet, how much can you have outside of a cabinet, uh, type design of containers, and you know what do you do when you're transferring it from one container to the other, uh, dispensing and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a pretty thorough standard, but it doesn't have any of this, uh, you know, audit inspection, process safety information, PHA type requirements in it. Okay. And um, Adam is asking for a clarification. He asks, um, did he hear correctly? Is he exempt if flammable materials are stored at atmosphere and have a boiling point well above atmosphere? Um, they're exempt if they are kept below their boiling point without the benefit of any type of uh, chilling or refrigeration. So if, if just their natural, their natural state, if they're kept below their boiling point in the atmospheric tank. Okay, great. And it looks like Travis, we have time for one more question. Um, and that question is, do covered establishments under PSM have to register with OSHA? 
No, they do not, surprisingly. Um, get that question a lot. Um, you, you don't have to tell OSHA that you have a covered process. Um, it may be different under you know, EPA. I think they find out through various reporting mechanisms what you have, but um, with, with OSHA, no, you, you don't. They, uh, you basically just determine yourself that you have a covered process and you comply with it. And if OSHA ever comes and does an inspection, um, that's when they'll, they will determine, you know, um, that you have one. Okay. Or should have one. Great. Well, folks, unfortunately, we've run out of time today. We thank you all for attending the presentation, and we appreciate you uh, taking some time to share your feedback via our survey. A special thank you today goes out to our ter terrific presenter, Travis Roden, and the entire team from our sponsor at JJ Keller. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Take care, everyone, and have a safe day. <laughs>